I can't even tell you how much pain I was in. It was excruciating 24-7. And, you know, on, on the day when I just got to the point where it, it wasn't like I'd planned it or thought about it, it was really an in-the-moment thing. I'm done. I'm absolutely done. I can't do this anymore. And the only way out is to die. This is Mind Body Matters with Greg Rennie and Rob Reeford. Welcome to our little podcast about physical and mental wellness. What do you mean, little podcast? Oh, I, I'm just being humble. What did I offend you? <laughs> <laughs> it's a large podcast. Okay, it, <laughs> Today's guest on the show mm-hmm. actually approached us, wanted to be on our show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, so that's why mm-hmm. I mean it's a large podcast. Okay. Now. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, if anything, we're, we're getting a lot of great guests, and, and I think that if we continue bringing on great guests like we have today, I think that uh, we're on a, a great track. And that's what I was getting at. So I was I was a little offended when you said our little podcast, because I'm thinking we're living large. <laughs> Today, we're talking about pain. And yes. I'm sure you can relate to it because you see me as a pain in the ass because I, I'm, I'm too, I'm too <laughs> damn detailed. <laughs> Do you want to comment on that? Oh, yes, you are. You're you're too detailed sometimes. And I'm going, oh, man. But uh, I I have to say, that's what makes the show the show that it is. How do you cope with uh, that pain in your ass? Getting back to what you're saying is Mm -hmm. we've all endured pain, especially me, too. I mean, not only uh, pain in thinking. But I mean, physical pain as well. Well, You had a hip hip replacement, right? I had pain. Yes, I did. When you had pain, how would you gauge yes. your pain before surgery? One being no pain at all. Ten being I can't I can't handle the amount of pain. It's too much. Okay. I would have been maybe a nine, a ten prior to surgery. Oh, really? Yeah. Now, the thing is, now I have zero pain because yeah. I'm not in any pain as far as my hip goes. What did you do for your pain? Which leads into this discussion today with uh, with Mira. How did you handle your pain? I mean, aside from the times that you use medication for your pain, like how how did you mentally cope with it? Well, that was the whole thing. I mean, uh, th- that is the mind-body yeah, connection, yeah. if you yeah. will. Yeah, you your know, body's, um, it seems like your body's telling your mind, I'm in pain. And I wasn't taking uh, any medication prior to the surgery. Oh. I just lived with the pain. I think you relate to um, our guest today, uh, Mira Ashaya. Mm-hmm. Mira talks, well, her her book really kind of explains it. Peace or Pain is the name of her book. And wouldn't mm-hmm. that be nice? Uh, I mean, the story that you're Peace telling me, or pain. you know, when it was a 10, you know, I'm not sure if it's a matter of getting rid of your pain or blocking your pain, but I think you'll relate to, uh, to this guest today. I have a feeling I will. <laughs> <laughs> Peace or Pain. Peace Take or Pain. Great name of a book. Yeah. yeah. Her real name is Sally Page, actually. She worked in graphic design for many years and, uh, you know, worked the corporate job. And then she had long-term chronic pain and uh, many other issues. And she decided to explore this from almost kind of like a spiritual angle. She went to a retreat and was so influenced that she stayed and actually was ordained a monk. Ordained as a monk. Yeah. Her ordained name is Mira Ashaya, and she's a monk okay. and teacher of what they call the Ascension Techniques, 
if you know what ascension techniques are, then you, you know what I'm talking about. For us, I got a lot of questions what that means, you know. Let's ask a lot of questions. <laughs> we will be asking a lot of questions. So her book is Peace or Pain, Discovering the Unbroken You and Changing Your Relationship with Pain. And also there's a workbook and journal that goes along with that book, too. And her second book okay. is Surrender is Good for the Soul, The Art of Surrendering to Gain Fulfillment in Life. Reminds me of a book. Chicken soup is uh, good for the soul. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but this is different. This is, this different. is different. Yeah, this is, this yeah, is about yeah. uh, a surrender uh, as mm. opposed to, hmm, chicken soup. <laughs> okay. Mm. The art of surrendering. Yeah. With or without yeah. chicken soup, maybe. I don't know. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> As we said, we got a lot of questions. Mira Ashaya is our guest today on Mind Body Matters. All righty. So you're comfortable? Have you got a glass of water or a coffee? Yeah. Got a whole, uh, yeah, whole glass of water. Always have one handy. <laughs> Excellent. Got to hydrate, right? Indeed. Well, we talked. I think about a week or so ago, you shared with me your books and there's uh, two books that you have. Uh, one is Peace or Pain and the other one is Surrender is Good for the Soul. I found these books fascinating. I related to them in many different ways as someone that does meditation. What's really cool about having you on the show today, Mira, is that your books go into depth about the mind-body connection. That's what we're about. You know, Mind-Body Matters is about that connection between the mind and body. So I really appreciate you setting aside the time for us today. Yeah, you're very welcome. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Could we start early on in your life? Your book kind of picked it up from a, a very crucial period in your life where the option of suicide came to the top of your mind. But what was your life like before this chronic pain happened? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I had a, I had a great childhood, really. There was so much support in my family life but I think really um, from very early on I was um, what was often referred to as a sickly child you know like I was always oh, no. ill with kind of earaches and sore throats and I, I kind of learned early on as well you know like school environment was quite stressful for me I, I I was I always felt like I was on the edge of every group I've ever you know been around um, it's almost like everyone else had a rule book and <laughs> no one no one shared it with me <laughs> I've always kind of been very different. I think it's because um, I'm very empathetic um, and uh, I've never been able to play the game that some people do. You know, particularly kids can be quite cruel in school, the school environment. Mm -hmm. And I was always very shocked by that. And always, I just didn't know how to handle it. Um, for me, I can't do that. I couldn't play the game back, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah, you couldn't couldn't return the fire yeah yeah exactly yeah. and it felt like yeah. everybody else kind of knew those rules of the game here and it's like no one shared them with me <laughs> um <laughs> and, and really just i think the illness just got worse you know so so um to the end of my um secondary school so around kind of 15 years of age um i i got glandular fever um and was was really sick i kind of missed you know half my year how, how i passed my exams i don't know but i actually did really well in the exams um and and I think really it was just that resistance in me 
to the cruelty I saw. You know, like I, I couldn't understand why people were unkind. It's never made sense to me. And, and I just took it all on board. If there was any blame at all, it was me. It was my fault. So I kind of internalised that, mm-hmm. which I think kind of led to, you know, the state of my body getting, you know, sicker and sicker and more and more conditions, like the asthma came in, the eyesight got worse, headaches, you know. I used to take a lot of medication for headaches until I just stopped um, and found actually they, they balanced out by themselves, hmm. you know. Um, but but really, it, it wasn't until um, I, I got to the point where I couldn't walk um, when, when I had um, children. With the, the first birth went fine, but the second one, in the pregnancy, I got this condition called symphysis pubis dysfunction, um, which is quite a rare condition, and it leads you to not being able to walk. Okay. Uh, how, does, ligament- how does that come about? Like, What's the cause for that? Yeah, so there's a ligament at the front of the pubic bone. It's fixed in a guy, but for a, in, in a woman, to in order to have the baby. So it stretches to get that. that oh, okay. Yeah. So, but that yeah. joint, that ligament, didn't didn't work properly from the hormones of pregnancy and 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 I kind of wasn't really listened to by the it's like you know oh you get aches and pains don't worry about that you've already had a child you know what you're doing and so I kind of again as I'd learned to do internalized it all I'm doing something wrong you know I'm complaining it's about me yeah I should just you know shut up and put up sort of thing um and then uh, around um I think it was around about the 30 week mark um my legs collapsed gave way and I couldn't walk anymore oh my god and then I was kind of told why didn't you say something sooner I did. (laughs) (laughs) I'd learned not to complain, you know, and I'd said, and and then I was, you know, it often felt like I was shut down in life, you know, like the questions I asked, the the viewpoint I had didn't seem to make sense to the people around me. So I was always like a fish out of water, I think. Um, But that served me well since. (laughs) (laughs) You've come a long way, come a long way. In your book at the beginning in uh, chapter one, and we'll we'll kind of go through the book, not in detail, but each most of the chapters I made a note because I I wanted to know your your feedback on some of the things that um, that you shared in the book. In chapter one, it's about desperation, and I'm really sorry that you went through this, but there was a time in your life where you you thought about uh, dying, you thought about uh, taking your life. What like what caused that? What brought you to that low that low and being in that that dark pit of depression? Um, it was it was physical pain. Yeah, you know, by that point in time, um, with the the symphysis pubis condition, like I, my child was probably about eighteen months old by now. The second child, maybe nearer two, um, and so I was, you know, a, a mum with two young children, which is enough pressure on its own in a way. But I was in so much pain. You can't. I can't even tell you how much pain I was in. It was excruciating, twenty four seven. I didn't get very much sleep. Kids would wake me up. The pain would wake me up. Um, and, you know, on, on the day when I just got to the point where it, it wasn't like I'd planned it or thought about it. It was really an in-the-moment thing. I'm done. I'm absolutely done. I can't do this anymore. And the only way out is to die. You know, I couldn't see it. I, try, I was trying so many different things and nothing was helping. And it really just felt like nobody around me cared or listened or understood, which wasn't true. <laughs> But that's the way it felt to me because it's very isolating pain. You, you kind of um, go into a state of managing and coping and pretending that everything's okay for all my children, for people around me. I'd learned to do that, to internalize, to not bother anyone, to not, 
you know, let people know how dire my situation had come, really. And so, yeah, I just got to that point where I'm like, I'm, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I'm in so much pain. I actually cannot take it anymore. Um, but do you know what? It was the most liberating experience, Greg. You know, I mean, I think for me, I think getting to that point, you don't care anymore. Like you just let go. You actually utterly surrender because... Mm-hmm. Because you're done, you know. You, you stop the fight, you stop the managing, you stop the coping, and you're done. And I, I, I picked up a knife to to end my life, to to cut my wrists. And my husband saw me, so you know he he came over and tried to talk me down. And like I just like I kind of knew he was there, but all of my attention was in internal, and I was just you know a little bit of attention on him just to just to stop me from doing it, I guess. And and then um, he was holding my um, our son in his arms and. He just made kind of this little gurgly noise in his throat. You know how yeah. young babies do sometimes? Yeah. And it just, it was just captivating. Like my eyes just flicked up when I heard the sound because it was an unexpected sound. I hadn't any resistance to, you know, my husband trying to talk me down. I was just like, no, I don't want to listen. Whereas this was such an innocent, pure sound. And, and so, yeah, my eyes flicked up and they just looked straight into my son's eyes. And honestly, it was like time stood still. And it's just like I dropped into this. It's like the bottom dropped out of the world and I was just in peace. It was just endless peace. Wow. No pressure, no edges, no thought of dying, no thought of even living, actually. It was just being in that moment. And it was so still, so pure, uh, and so immense, so enveloping. There was just nothing else. Um, My husband saw... (laughs) took the knife out of my hand while my attention was elsewhere. Um, and, and then really it just, for me, that was such a captivating moment. I'm like, wow, that can happen <laughs> when I'm at my lowest point in my life. How do I get that back? Because it obviously faded. Right. How do I, you know, like, now I have the direct experience though. Now I've got something to live for. Now I've got something to, to search for. Like that's possible in that moment. It's got to be, got to be possible in other moments too. You experienced hope at that point because in the book you said, I, I didn't know what it was, this this experience looking into your son's eyes, but I knew there was hope you have here. There was hope that things could change, that things could be different. Yeah. Did that hope fade or no. did the hope become a catalyst? The, the hope was really strong, you know, because like I think if you um, have like the conceptual understanding of something, you can go, yeah, I've got hope, but it's something you kind of Ginny yourself up to do, you talk yourself into, whereas this was a really solid experience. You know, like I think when you have the experience of something and it impresses upon you, um, you know, mind, body, spirit, every single part of you, you know, in every single cell of your body. So that hope is rock solid. So, and, and, and also there was excitement actually, you know, like, what is this? <laughs> How do I get this? Can this could be, can this be permanent? Let's move ahead in your book um, to see this journey that, that you started. I, I, I don't want to take up a lot of your time, but I, I want to move towards um, your spiritual uh, experiences and, and how you've you know transcended peace and pain. Chapter five is tied in with the title of your book. It says Peace or Pain. Um, tell us a bit about your experiences with yoga at that time. Was that helping you? prior to your retreat? Uh, yeah, so I, 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 it was meditation as opposed to yoga. Oh, um, I see. Actually, yoga I had done years before and loved and enjoyed and was doing before I went on um, my Mastery of the Self course, which is where I learned about the concept that, that you can have peace or pain in any given moment. Right. 
And I actually couldn't do the yoga program as part of the retreat because of my physical condition. I'd even tried chair yoga and even that didn't work. It just it just flared everything up, so I had to stop. Um, but, you know, um, the, the guy who ended up becoming my spiritual teacher, you know, he, he had this talk um, about peace or pain. And like in the present moment, you don't experience any pain whatsoever. And so there is always a choice to be present and therefore, you know, peace or pain. And in this context, pain is really suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you cut yourself, you know, if you have a, if you're in a car accident, there's going to be pain. You know, like I had broken ribs at one point. You know, pain is always possible, but the suffering aspect, it's like a secondary pain, um, a reaction to the physical body sensation that you're having or the emotional feeling. Like we have the emotions. Um, but then we have a dialogue about the emotion. So we had there's a reaction, which is typically has a dialogue aspect to it. There's the mind is talking about. So therefore, you experience your body or the emotion through the story, the reactions, the deductions of the mind. Um, and so, but you can also have a pure experience of the body. So, for example, when I did have broken ribs, I could have a whole world of pain and suffering. Or I could be fully present with it, I could still experience the body sensation, but it wasn't hot or cold, good or bad. It was just like it was there. I didn't need it to go. And strangely, when that, when I was in the present mode of operation, um, I had more uh, range of movement. So, for example, when you have broken ribs, you know, you can't laugh, you can't sneeze, you can't cough because you get like a stab of pain. If I If I leaned and got my drink too quickly, I'd get a stab of pain. And so... But when I was present, I found there was a fluidity in my movement. I could reach to get my drink, come back, and oh, no stab. No having to be careful. You know, it was just like a more fluid, gentle mode of operation, if you like. And so that's kind of what I've discovered by the choice of peace or poem. We're in two modes of operation. We're either in that reactive, deductive, thinking, reasoning mode, and and then, you know, dipping ahead to the thought creative reality chapter for my surrender book. You know, we'll experience it like we've got a virtual reality headset on. So everything that we see, everything we experience, everything we hear, everything we do, it's all experienced through the filters of the mind. It's not a pure experience. And so when you're present, you're then accessing another operating mode, which is pure. So now you have the direct experience without the mind coming in and telling you how it is, how to experience it, what you're hearing, what you're seeing. Um, and so that's the choice that I, I explore and play and yeah. now have a really solid experience of. Uh, it was fascinating reading about that in the book. And I, I don't know if I really understand it fully. Uh, it, the first thought I had is, is this, is this a way to block the pain uh, somehow uh, or there's more to it than that? No, it's it's like it's. Like I um, practice uh, practice many different things to help with the pain, um, you know, from taking pain medication. Um, and then I also used a TENS machine, which I think um, I didn't use it in the pregnancy, but I think through um, labor you can actually use a TENS machine, which is like gives little electrical shocks on the skin. Um, and so that helped a little. So that's interrupting the pain signal. So you stop mm-hmm. experiencing it. Um, but what I have discovered is you kind of, that I have quite sensitive skin, so I could only use that for a short period of time before actually my skin got aggravated. Um, but what I'm talking about is is presence. It's like changing your relationship with everything, purifying your relationship with everything. Okay. 
you know, so that the mind component isn't any longer in play. Like when we're present, there's no thinking. There's, if there's thoughts arising, you're actually, your attention is partly in this moment and partly on the thinking stream, which is almost like a radio station, you know, that's, that's sending out yeah. a signal. And we are listening to that story and experiencing this moment through that story. And so we can come away from that. We can come into this moment through using awareness, uh, directing where our attention is right now onto the to the still silent backdrop, which kind of a little, a little bit like, you know, how the, your vision works. You have a point of focus uh-huh. and then we have peripheral vision. And for those that can see clearly, they have a strong peripheral vision. And it's the same with being present. You have your point of focus of whoever's in front of you, whatever thoughts are flowing through, but you have a strong peripheral awareness of stillness and silence. And that then purifies and clarifies your point of focus of whatever's in front of you. So you have a fuller experience uh, than you do if you're thinking it's kind of like a narrowed narrowed down right. version of events. Let's say uh, someone has chronic back pain, right? They injured their back, let's say. So they have chronic back pain. They feel that's a reality. They obviously have the thinking, the thoughts around it. Oh my God, it's it's worse today. It's a it's a ten. Yesterday was a five. I can't handle this pain. Do I take another Percocet? Do I? Um, so if the like, walk me through. If I had chronic pain, back pain, to me that's real. To me, the doctor says yes. You've injured your back. You have pain. How can I make a choice? How can I get out of that by choosing uh, uh, calm and peace when my body is telling my my brain, I can't handle this pain? Yeah, um, and it is real. Like I, I had this experience with broken ribs. My body was damaged. You know, someone came along and just said, you know, all is well. Like, no. <laughs> like I said, I experienced that in two different modes of operation, if you like. So if I was listening to my head going, oh, my God, this is so difficult, you know, this is a 10 today. If I was listening to that dialogue, I was experiencing the reality of that. Okay, yeah. But what is, what is real and what we experience is based on where our attention is. So if we train our attention through using a meditation technique so that we start to become attentive, and the ones I teach, the ascension techniques, they, um, a lot of meditation techniques keep your attention on the content, you know, on the breath, on the mantra. Uh, whereas these techniques are like a short sentence that are structured in such a way that directly bring your attention back onto the, the still silent backdrop. And when you're attentive to that, the mind quiets down. So now you're having a completely different experience. So, so you're changing your relationship with the pain, the pain the, the physic, if, so if you think of it as the pain, certainly the suffering is a reaction. If you're talking, if there's dialogue about it, there's a reaction, right. there's a deduction, there's a story about what you're experiencing. Then there's a pure body sensation. You know, my ribs were broken. <laughs> there was no getting around that. There was a physical sensation to that. But when I was present and I was attentive to stillness and silence, there was more awareness on that, so then the mind quieted down. So there was no dialogue about it now. So I was having a pure experience of it rather than a tainted one, a one, you know, um, governed by the, the voice chattering away, telling me what I was experiencing. 
And and so when that quietened down and I was attentive to stillness and silence, which takes practice, you know, um, I can guide people to it to typically no pain quite easily. Sometimes not. It depends on how um, resistant we are. You know, like if we're in a really strong state of resistance and repressing everything, which we kind of do to keep ourselves safe. Um, we have a very strong um, defense mechanism that we've learned from young children. So for some people, it might be more of a case of I redirect their attention onto another part of the body or widen their awareness. So they're not just taking in the point that's painful. And when they've got the wider awareness, so now the, the, the painful point is only part of their experience. So therefore it's smaller. That makes sense. Yeah. Because you're starting to broaden what you're aware of as opposed to hyper-focusing and having all of your attention on the painful body part, in which case it's going to be really intense, really painful. And the more you want it gone, the more intense it will get. And the more you can allow it to be here, <laughs> the more gentle it becomes. And then you can start to purify your experience so that you are not resisting it and you're not listening to the radio station telling you what the experience is like, in which case you will have that experience. You mentioned resistance, uh, which is a big part of the one chapter in your books. Let's go to that. The fr- well, I, I, I do have a question beforehand. Isn't this mindfulness? Like, couldn't someone just take a mindfulness course and be able to transcend the pain? Um, in, in my experience, um, mindfulness is uh, just observing and paying attention. Now, there's a chance you could go beyond the pain through, through doing that. Um, but typically, we have a very strong habit to pay attention to the mind. Ah. Um, yeah. So what we're doing with, so mindfulness is just observing, just noticing. Um, and the techniques we teach, that's kind of like the first step. <laughs> and then, so you might actually come fully present from just doing that alone. It depends. But typically, even if we can do that, we'll come back into our awareness contracts back down. And we then just listen to thinking and experiencing that. Whereas with the meditation technique, particularly the ascension ones, which direct your attention automatically onto stillness and silence, rather than the paying attention and it gradually settles down so your awareness widens, then it's more effective, more direct, faster. So you exercise that awareness muscle more readily so it can stabilize and stay wider, if you like. Mm -hmm. So you are taking in, because the stillness and silence is pure awareness. Like you, you know, the, the you that is looking out through your eyes right now, Greg, is pure awareness. And in that field of awareness, thoughts pass through. So sometimes people describe it like, you know, you are the sky. Yeah. The awareness is the sky and the thoughts of the clouds. Right, right. Clouds in the sky does not disturb the sky. The sun does not stop shining because there are clouds. We might not be so aware of it. And so with this, we are just starting to become aware of awareness, if you like, rather than just the thoughts that are passing through the awareness. Aware of awareness. Interesting. Let's talk about... Which is a natural state of being, by the way. It is, yeah. No, you, very, very I natural agree. to do that. Yeah, I agree. And if, we, if we're if we like in a... In, if we go to the beach, for example, <laughs> you know, you sit down and you're just like, oh, I'm on holiday. Yeah, you know? exactly. And you just stop and you watch for a moment and everything becomes quiet and still automatically you become present. But then the voice kicks back in again, you know, like oh, seagulls are making a racket or, you know... I'd like a drink or maybe I'll go and get an You know, that chatter just starts to come back in again. Yeah. That's why you need a meditation technique to, to stabilize your awareness wide on, on, on the silent awareness. So I understand that 
the way that we resist, like the resistance causes problems. If I can go back to your book and quote you here, when you're resisting life, resisting emotions, resisting your thoughts, resisting what people say to you, resisting situations and events, you're causing yourself to suffer. Resistance always leads to suffering. Can, can you explain that a little bit more, what that means? Yeah, sure. You know, like, um, you know, young kids just play and dance and, and just do, don't they? They're, they're fully open and, and, and surrendered. They're just in this moment and they just do what they want to do. And then the adults come along and go, think about what you're doing, you know, <laughs> do what I say. Yeah. And, that, and then we're, we, we kind of want to bring them into our world of deduction and reasoning and, you know, rules and, and things like this. And kids are just like, no, I want to play until they finally get trained, you know, to become adults. But when you resist something... It increases intensity, always. Yeah, it's like there's a natural flow of energy that flows through us, which is there to enliven us, to um, empower us. And when we push that down, then we're going to get friction and pressure because that flow doesn't stop. And we want that, you know, because it empowers us, it enlivens us, it, it gives us the energy that we need to to operate. And, you know, if we've got a stressful situation up uh, coming up, we might get more, you know, there to serve us, there to help us. But of course, we've been trained from a young age. Don't cry. Right. Calm down. You're not allowed to have your emotional expression, you know, which, you know, when they're quite young, kids communicate through emotion. And so we're actually interfering with their, you know, way of communicating. They don't understand some of the concepts that we have when they're, you know, two, three years old, for example. And the minute we do that, we start getting them, training them to repress the energy that, that flows through. And one could say, sorry to jump in, yeah. and, and one could say that's conditioning, right? Yeah. That's that's the conditioning that the parent does for the, the child, and that's pretty natural, but we do. We, we, we grow up with being taught these things, and do I understand what you're saying is that we have to retrain ourselves? Yeah, essentially. Um, you know, and like when we're resisting too, everything's distorted, like the experience that we have is distorted. It's not pure any longer. It's pressure filled and it's slanted. It's distorted. We don't actually see things clearly and purely then when there's distortion. You know, that pressure is like mud in water. You know, like we then don't see as clearly. Thoughts are, are like mud in water. And an awful lot of what resistance is, is, is comes from the mind. The mind has come to conclusions, this is true, that is true, this is good, that is bad, and it tries to, you know, carve out your life for like, this you want more of, this you don't want more of. But the thing is with, with that is what you put your attention on grows. So if you've got a whole bunch of things, I don't want that, I must avoid that, actually you're bringing them into your life because in, in, in trying to push them away, actually you just put, got your attention on what you don't want. So it's going to continually come to you, almost like you're magnetizing what you don't want. And so the mind does that. It, it does. It does. And uh, I know from being a therapist, a lot of things, you know, where there's challenges and barriers in the person's life, a lot of it is retraining and looking at healthier ways. I think what's really hopeful about your book is something you mentioned earlier, is that peace is a natural state. It's it's where we should be. And you said our our original operating mode, <laughs> so to speak. I like that. And it's accessible now within us. And all you have to do is access it, find a technique, a vehicle to take you to that still silent space. That 
that's very calming and and uh, creates a lot of hope for me that peace, which we're all trying to find, luckily is where our baseline is, is and- where we are. And it's natural to be in peace rather than seeking peace. Um, it's a matter of discovering peace. Would I, would that be right? Yeah, because like peace is right here right now. But our attention isn't always here now in this moment because it's no. tuned into the radio station of thinking. And when we're thinking, <laughs> we're always in another moment. You can't even, th- even if something's literally just happened, you're already instantly in the past for you to even be able to think about it, you know? And and peace is, it's, it's a space. It's the space underlying all action. So it, it, it comes into, um, you know, the difference between the content, your thoughts, your emotions, your body sensations, other people, the movement, the noise in the world. It's all content. And there's a context of, of stillness to the movement, silence to the sound, and, and space to all the stuff in it. And to have some of our attention on the, the context of stillness, silence, and space is very, very natural. Just like the way our eyes work. We're born, most people are born being able to see quite clearly and they've got a very strong peripheral vision and they can see their point of focus clearly. And over time, if we strain on close-up stuff or we get stressed and our eyes get tension, then we start to lose our peripheral vision and then the point of focus becomes blurry and we do the same thing with awareness. You know, with kids, it's just like, pay attention to this. It's like we start straining and pushing and forcing and kind of, you know, squashing ourselves into this, this version of who we should be to fit into society, you know? Some of those rules are useful. Some of them are not. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Mira, uh, and that's a, a name that you adopted. We're going we're gonna to get to that. But, Mira, your, your shift, like the knowledge you have right now, and as you mentioned, you help people uh, discover, uh, discover this path, Tell us about the 10-day retreat in uh, Oxfordshire. It was the Bright Path Ashayas. Is, is, do I pronouncing that right? Yeah, yeah, perfect. And and that's that's who I became. I'm a Bright Path Ashaya. Um, but this was before I had um, become a teacher in Ashaya Monk. Um, I was on this retreat um, in, in Oxfordshire. And um, yeah, I was just, you know, excited by what I'd experienced so far using these techniques and wanted to kind of immerse myself in it for 10 days to see, you know, what was possible within that. I already saw the more I did it, the more impact it had on my life. So it's not just about having a peaceful experience while you're using the, the techniques. It's actually, cult- and you can use a eyes open too, and the two work together. So you start to stay in this other operating mode where you access peace all the time, really. Um, and so I was having an amazing time, lovely people, lovely food. Um, but uh, typically when I... Um, meditated or we call it because it's the practice of ascension ascended and so I was ascending um in the room and this pain was just building up in my forehead like it was getting more and more and more intense and I was thought I was gonna you know something was gonna snap or break or you know when you just get to the point where like no this is too intense now I can't actually keep going um so I went out of the the main room that we were using to to ascend in um to look for a teacher to ask for help because I'm like this this is horrible (laughs) like help help me get rid of this pain 
Um, and I was looking for a particular teacher, you know, like I want this teacher, he's the safe one. Um, and this other teacher who I'd never met before, I knew he was on the tree, but I didn't know him. So, I, you know, I was very suspicious of new people at that time. Um, and, and, but he kind of came in and like, can I help you? And I was like, you know, looking around for this other teacher I wanted and they weren't there. And so I'm like, okay. So I sat down with him and he just, he was just so peaceful. Like, you know, you just hang out with the shires and you just feel the peace that they're having as an experience. And so he sat and looked at me and I shared, you know, and I'm like, I just, I just need this pain to go. I can't carry on ascending. It's just not possible with a sliver of pain. And, you know, he just looked at me with his lovely, you know, very peaceful eyes and just said, can you let it be here right now? And I, I wow. honestly, I wanted to scream at him. No, yeah. <laughs> no, man, I just came to you for help. I want you to... That doesn't make sense intellectually, no. no <laughs> yeah, no. I want you to take it away, you know. But it was kind of like his presence held me and I found myself going, yes, I can. Just for this moment, because he said, just for this moment, can you just let it be here just for this moment? So I went, yes, okay, I can. And in that moment, in, when I agreed... The pain went, like vanished in an instant, Greg. Like you cannot imagine how shocked I was because <laughs> yeah, I've been, yeah. you know, having this pain increasing and it was really high level. And I'm like, you know, this is a fixed, solid state here. The pain is there. It's locked in my body. And in the allowing it to be here right now, all the resistance fell away and it just softened and it just vanished. It wasn't even a gradual thing. It was just poof, gone. And I'm like, poof. yeah. And I'm like, yeah. huh? Like, you know, if if I hadn't lived through that experience, you know, so for anyone listening, if they're like, that's not even possible. Like, I totally understand why you think it's not possible. I didn't think it was possible. Um, but that then again, like the experience that I'd had, you know, when I wanted to end my life, experience informs you much greater than any concept does. You know, like you can buy into a concept, you can believe something to be true. And then when you have a direct experience that's in opposition to that, you're like, no, that's true. Because you, you know it, you're you're living it mm -hmm. now, you're breathing it, you're experiencing it. So so that was like really uh, you know, a life changing moment, which happened in like one second or less. Just because somebody invited me to let let the pain be here, which it was already here. So it's a bit of a like, you know, just stop fighting and let what is already happening happen. I love how you describe that experience. If I could read that and uh add anything if if you would like. So in the in the book, Mira said, I experienced a warm, gentle, soothing yet powerful energy flowing through my whole body, emanating from my heart. I just blinked and was silent because there were no words. This reminds me a lot of uh, some of the meditation I did years ago that you can have these experiences in Zen Buddhism where it's very similar. This was an instant thing. So is there another way to describe that feeling? I know it was just poof, it was there, but w was there any other way to explain it with words? It was just, it was like a surrendering. It was you just giving up the fight. Like, I think we learn, habitually learn to, to try in life, to sort of strive and strain and force our will to get the results that we want. Whereas actually there's a natural flow in life that if we just stop in this moment and kind of pick up that, you, you pay attention, you kind of pick up then what wants to happen, which actually is always for our good, but we don't trust that and we don't believe that because, you know, our experiences have told us otherwise. My experiences told me otherwise. So for me, to just stop and the pain will go, I just had no 
yeah, I had just no understanding that that could ever be possible until, and I think you do need somebody, I think, that's having a very rested experience in order for that to happen. If somebody's thinking and struck, you know, like in a real state of resistance themselves, I'm not sure it would have the same impact. When you're around someone who has walked the path and let go of so much, instantly it's like you just get pulled into that piece because the presence is so huge. But from a person who has been actively drawing out their attention there and now it rests there all of the time. Share. I, I, I want to get to the ascension techniques. It's fascinating stuff. I want I want the audience to um, to hear about it. How did you go from the retreat to deciding to go to Spain and become a monk yourself? What went through that? What was your transition to that? <laughs> well, even the year before, I had wanted to go. Like, and I think for me, really, it was like my heart wanted it, and my mind taught me out of it. My heart wanted it and my mind taught me out of it again and again and again. And then I went on this retreat and it's just like that experience, you know, like if I could bring that, because it lasted quite a long period of time before it then gradually faded again. And I'm like, so hang on a minute. I'm thinking as like the more I saw, the longer I did. So like I'd done weekend courses and things like that. And it was always like it kind of grew as the weekend went on. So doing 10 days, I saw how... You did your two days that I'd done on as a weekend, and then it continued to grow. And I'm like, whoa, the, 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 the mastery of the self-course was six months. Wow. Now, I initially never could commit to that. I yeah. like, mum with two children, you know. Um, I can't remember what ages they were at the time. I think they were something like um, nine and 11, you know, and to leave them with my husband. But he was actually the one who encouraged me to go in the end, you know, because he could see it's what I wanted. Um. He could see that, and he learned the techniques in the end, actually, because he saw how I went from so kind of angry all the time, so stressed and anxious, dipping down into depression. He, he related more with the depression than the anxiety. But he saw the change in me, and I'm, I'm much, much nicer to live with now <laughs> than, I was, than I was then when I was kind of reactive all the time. So he made a good investment then, right? Yeah, exactly. So so for <laughs> me, the, the process and the, the decision to go was a bit of a no-brainer. Like, do I want to live in anger? Do I want to live stressed and anxious? You know, because I could still have that experience. I kind of, you know, you start to kind of come in and out of it. It wasn't stabilized. And I'm like, imagine if I could stabilize this experience so I can live my life from there. That's what I was going for. And that's actually what that course gave me, you know, but it was a bit of a leap of faith, obviously, because it's a bit like, you know, what as if it's a cult or, you know, who knows? It's like, you don't know really you're heading off to another yeah. country. And I was a very shy, introverted person. So for me to do that, I was, I was terrified. It really took a, it took a leap of faith to, to dare to do it. But I think because of the direct experience that kind of lasted longer this time, I'm like, I've got to go for it. I know I'm afraid, but I've got to go for this because this is amazing. And boy, am I glad I did. <laughs> yeah. wait, wait, is there a ceremony? Like how, how, how did this work? A ceremony for what? When you became a monk. Uh, uh, yeah. Like how, how, how did that, how did that come about? So it's the six month course, as I said, five months of that. It's really just about, um, meditating or ascending as we call it for long hours so you really stabilize that experience you know because I, I, we, we teach from experience so we're not you know it's a little bit like you know 
anybody who does counseling or psychologists, they have to kind of make sure they're in a stable state to help others. Yeah. Okay. I get that. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. really, but I was just stabilizing my experience in five months. And then the last month was just the teacher training, learning the core material for the course. Uh, I see. Okay. To teach the techniques, um, you know, to others, basically. And we always teach in pairs. So it's kind of more, not always, but the majority of the time. So it's more about the teaching. So there's not such a chance that the ego could maybe sneak its little way back in, you know. Uh, oh, the ego. Let go of your ego. It's very cunning. <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, ascension te- the ascension techniques is in chapter 21 of your book. Why does ascension, I grew up Catholic, Christian. <laughs> Why does ascension for me associate with Easter or something like that in, in Christian faith? He ascended, like you went ascended to heaven, I think is a phrase. Um, why is it that I have that association? Uh, just because it's been used. Yeah. I suppose the, the, the terms have been used, haven't they, in religions. Um, but um, although I'm a monk, it's not a religious practice or organization. Um, it's about spirituality, which is just about discovering the parts of ourselves that we, we miss because we're so busy listening to the mind and we're in that mind, you know, emotional, physical state of being all of the time. So it's just starting to become more aware and attentive. So you see the bigger picture, basically. Um, but ascension, you know, just like it's just actually a descriptive term. You know, we ascend the stairs, don't we? Yes. A staircase. That's so it's right. just going above and beyond the the surface of the mind, the thinking mind, so that we come back to pure awareness. Um, and the techniques are mechanical. So automatically, every time you think a technique, boom, you're there. You know, you can you can like disagree with it. You can think there's no way. You can be we, we actually encourage skepticism, you know, ask us questions, you know. All of the awkward questions you want to ask, ask us. Be skeptical. Be skeptical. This is a practice, you know, that's experiential rather than we're not teaching a belief system here. We actually want to go beyond our belief systems to the pure experiencing state. And and because the techniques are mechanical and automatically bring, that's why I talk about the awareness muscle. So it trains it. Like you use the technique, boom, you're here. We go back into thinking. Use the technique again, boom, you're there. It's, so it becomes like the thought that replaces the other thoughts, which I think is absolute genius, you know, because mm-hmm. we work with the mind, with the body. We're not fighting anything. We're actually just going with it, bringing ourselves, drawing our attention back onto the natural backdrop of, of awareness. You talk a lot about commitment. Uh, expand on that. That commitment, like you have to really believe in it and really work hard and, and uh, you know, uh, have hours and hours and hours of this experience or like what is commitment in this? Yeah. So we actually, um, it's one of the things that we suggest to people um, when we teach them on the course on the, on the first evening, on the Friday evening, Friday evening, Saturday and Sunday, it, typically we teach um, the, the first four Ascension techniques over. And, and so we suggest commitment and it's not about um, trying um working hard you know actually ascension is the opposite becoming it's an undoing as opposed to a doing um but we suggest commitment because if you know it's just like anything if you don't practice something you're going to continue having the same experience so in order for you to actually change your relationship with your mind and gain the mastery of it rather than it mastering you then you've got to put the time in and so what we suggest is 20 minutes two or three times a day using the techniques eyes closed so first thing in the morning last thing at night actually quite easy to do. Um, I actually used to feel like I needed 10 hours sleep. Now I have five or six does it with an hour 
I, I do an hour at night and an hour in the morning. Now, now most that, I, that's because I'm, you know, a dedicated teacher and, and a shy monk. But for most people, 20 minutes, morning and night. And then if you get, you know, a chance in the middle of the day, 5, 10 or another 20-minute session, then that releases all the stored stress. So you start to, the stress is released so you can access the natural experience without that stress being in the way you know like you're clearing like a filtration system clearing that mud out of the water i get that yeah, yeah. clearing yeah clearing the stress out of the nervous system so now you're having a clear experience of this moment the other thing that we say about commitment as well which i loved is to practice the techniques for six weeks six weeks then then decide if they work or not Having a finite time, I love that because otherwise you kind of you're all excited when you first learn it, and then it kind of fades away. Whereas if you know you're committing to six weeks, people stick at it much more easily for that period of time. So for me, that was it was a really good way of tricking me into right commit <laughs> rather than if you've got to commit it for the rest of your life, like that's too big, isn't it? Like right, yeah. bite size amount, yeah. six weeks, go for it, see what happens. <laughs> Let's talk about surrender. Talk about a word that has association, right? Uh, a, a, a very often used term that I think a lot of people, at least, you know, I do associate giving up with surrender, surrender to who, to what, and, you know, do I feel safe surrendering to this technique and, and, uh, the process, um, why is surrender like you, like your second book is about surrender. Why is that important with us? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, having read the uh, written the first book, Peace or Pain, uh, I did write a chapter about resistance. But and the antidote to resistance is surrender. And I see. You know, like I put actually in the first chapter of the surrender book. You know, it's like I I I was like, there's no way I'm surrendering to anyone or anything. It's my life, my way. I was battling through life basically. Um, and for me, you know, to to give up, then it it would have been a disaster. I would have no freedom. And for me, my highest desire is freedom. I want the freedom to choose for myself, you know, to do. I, I love doing stuff for other people, but, you know, I, I want to be able to have the life that I want. And so the idea of surrender was just like, nah, I am not doing that. Um, and actually, the only thing that changed that was the direct experience of surrender. Oh, okay. In the moment you use the technique is is basically a surrender happens. Um, and, and all you're doing, actually, is you're surrendering your small, limited ego self, where all your attention is, to the greater part of yourself. I so get that. It's no, it's, there's no separation. There's, there's nothing you're surrendering to. You are actually just giving up the fight and surrendering to peace. So when that starts to become, you know, you recognize that is actually true from an experience, then it becomes a no-brainer. You're like, yeah. I, yeah. I want to surrender and I want to keep surrendering. And actually, mm -hmm. the natural state of being is a surrendered state. We are surrendered. We are open. So peace So peace is where we are at the surrender state. Yeah. Do I have that right? Yeah. Okay. For, for yeah. you to experience peace, you have to be fully yeah. surrendered in this moment. And, and really, that just means surrendering the thoughts in the mind. So you're not any longer identified with them, you know, because there's nothing wrong with thoughts or thinking. You know, but it's just like for me, I want the freedom to have the pure, clear experience rather than one that essentially just a, a program of thoughts. It's all the mind is, is a collection of thoughts. But this program runs my life, whereas I want the freedom to actually see beyond that, see what else mm -hmm. is available to have that freedom of choice. Because if we're thinking, we're, we're actually subject to the content of the thoughts downloaded from a very young age by about the age of seven years old. 
majority of our belief system is is already ingrained in us. And we never chose that. I, I, we don't choose that with, with sponges as young children. So whatever we are immersed in when we're very, very young, that's the belief system we take on board. And there's no freedom in that. There's no choice in that. So for me to surrender what I think I am to who I really am right now in this moment, it has just been so liberating. In the work that I've done with clients, uh, discussing anger and what's underneath the anger has been a, a big part of it. And there's a chapter in your uh, in your book, uh, uh, Surrender, where you talk about anger in its many, many disguises. Um, why is anger such an important piece here? I, what is, I, I can assume, but I'm, I'm, I'm interested to know from your point of view. Yeah, well, I think um, anger, for me, I was a very, very angry person all the time. And we're talking flip into rage very, very easily. Um, and what I didn't recognize at that point in time was I was repressing my anger. I was trying my hardest not to be angry. The more I did that, the angrier I got. Um, and I think with anger, we, we lose our sense of agency. We lose our choice. You know, we are then actually letting the other person rule us when we're angry. Um, and for me, it, again, it just comes back from to wanting freedom. Now, the anger naturally subsided in me through using the ascension techniques, thankfully. But there were times with my family where I would still go back into the triggered state and they're like, I thought you practiced meditation, you know. <laughs> and then, of course, that was just red back to the ball and it's like, rah, yeah. you know. Yeah, um, I was going to ask you, so that does that mean you never, ever become <laughs> angry? Yeah. yeah. Well, like these days, it's incredibly rare. And, and really, it's just any last button that's left within me, any last belief system or, or, or position I'm holding about something, somebody opposes that, then there's a chance you could you could start to rile me. And and, and typically it's it's close family members that do that. No anybody in public doesn't ever make me angry anymore. Um and it's really just through knowing myself, getting to know myself, to come back to that surrendered state. There's not that forcefulness and pressure in me anymore that would very quickly get triggered and uh, into the reactive angry state again so you know understanding anger is a very very important part of transcending it in, in my experience so seeing all the little different ways like boredom somebody's bored they're typically angry there's passive aggressive people who never raise their voice yet there's this simmering anger and very empathetic so i can sense it within them but there's no honesty about it. So I think understanding that we are angry, we are resentful, we do get, if you get irritated, you know, easily by things, or if you have a lot of dislike about a lot of things in the world, there's typically anger that is in the background governing your experience. And to just understand that, to acknowledge that, and a lot of it actually falls away just in the recognition of it. I'll mention another part of your book and, and quote you here. Acknowledge what is present and let it be just as it is for a moment. As you continue to witness whatever you are aware of in your body and the room that you are in. And this is acceptance. Can you expand on that? Yeah, because if we're listening to that voice in our head, we're in another location, effectively. Like our attention is in another location. But if you bear in mind that what you experience is where your attention is. So if you actually come back to this moment, for example, there's typically nothing to be worried about. 
you're worrying, it's usually the thoughts of telling you, oh my God, this could happen or that could happen. And you know, most of what we worry about never actually happens. So to just come back into this moment, pay attention. So you're now informed by reality rather than the thought created reality, which is fictional. You know, it's stale information that is informing your experience and it's not even true. It's not even happening right now. And yet your body doesn't know the difference. It'll just be experiencing whatever the mind tells it to experience. And so to just pay attention for a moment, you can come back to the truth of what is actually real, what is actually happening right now. And and then that is how you access the peace because there's always peace here now. Throughout our discussion here, uh, as we're winding down, there's uh, uh, there's a lot of parts of the book, uh, both books, and a lot of chapters I love to uh, talk more about. But at the beginning of these episodes, I always ask the person, "How do they see the connection between mind and body?" And you've you've described this here um, in a in a short way. What is that connection between mind and body? What is that interdependence that we should be aware of? Well, for me, the, the mind and body, is, it's a mind-body. It's one thing. One thing. Yeah. You know, like the, the thoughts that we have, when we don't recognize them as like clouds floating through and we identify with the thoughts, they then trigger an emotional reaction and we feel it somewhere in the body. So every thought mm. that we are identified that we have, we create emotion and we create an experience in the body. And so what I discovered through uh, with the state of physical health and my health's much more improved now is as the thinking has quietened down. So my body is then free because the body has an innate intelligence to heal itself. Like we don't have to help it. (laughs) It knows exactly what to do. You know, if we break an arm, we might need to have it set, but then the body, you know, we're told by the doctor, go and rest. And the body actually will do whatever it needs to do to, to repair that broken bone. It's, it's incredibly intelligent. Um, and, and so really that mind-body connection is starting to recognize that it's one, organi- one organism in a way, if you like. It's one thing, one mechanism, one function. Um, and any part of it that you um, have an impact on, so if you, if you do some meditation and you start to quieten down the mind, that quietens down the body. Now with that mind-body connection, when the body calms down, it can, it's now resting. And in fact, the only way the body has complete rest is when the mind is at rest. Because it's like they, they mirror each other. And so when you get complete rest, the body starts to heal, which is throwing off stress, which is activity. And that ac- activity in the body then reflects as activity in the mind. So that's an awful lot of what people struggle with, with meditation or mindfulness is thoughts are always going to keep arising. You stop and be still, your body's going to get active and heal and throw off the stress from its nervous system. And that causes activity in the mind. And we, d- we just work with that. We don't need to push the thoughts away. Just have something that you direct your attention on again. Either it's just watching the space, watching a part of your body, watching your breath, or using a meditation technique that directs your attention onto something. And 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 then the whole mechanism can just quieten down, do its job. Yes, so if the body heals and it'll throw some thoughts up, they'll just flow through, we continue watching, and it's a practice, you know, it's an art form to be able to get used to observing everything that arises without jumping on it and doing something with it and and pushing it away and resisting or needing to think about it and assess it and analyze it. Why do you think that we see it separate? Why do we, like, is there an an advantage for someone uh, to see it as separate as mind and body? Is it just a healthcare thing where 
you know, it's been separated for many years or like, why is it that we are even talking about it being separate? Why isn't it just one word like I have in the title of their show, mind body? You know, it's one word. Do you, do you think there's an advantage in some way for the average person to think of it as separate? I don't know. I mean, from my experience, it's just what I grew up understanding. I have a mind, I have a body, you know, and I didn't even really think about it that much because it wasn't, you know, you know, it just wasn't part of my childhood growing up. My dad was a dentist, so I was very much, um, and my mum was a teacher, so I was very much taught that, you know, about physics, really, the physical world. And I think the thing is the body is tangible. We can see it. We yes. can move it. The mind is ethereal almost. We just like, you can't exactly. grasp a thought, can you? So. It, it seems like a separate function, I think. And so mm, we mm-hmm. just, I think the mind is, is very divisive. It compartmentalizes, doesn't it? You know, mm-hmm. uh, I think so. So I think for some people, it's hard to conceive that, that, that it, you know, actually everything is one. And, and I think we got to see that with the whole coronavirus <laughs> episode yes. where, you know, if you breathed out stuff, somebody else, could, you know, we know we transfer genes. So in a way, you, you know that none of us are separate, everything, you know, what, what somebody else breathes out, we breathe in. It's we're one organism in a way, e- e- even oh, I agree. as separate individuals. And then obviously the mind body, that's, that's one of the things that I loved about the name of your podcast. I'm like, I've got to apply to that one, you know, because like oh, good. already they're saying, you know, this, that the mind body is, is, is one thing. And, but for me, I don't think we need to even worry about what, we individually believe for me it's about the direct experience to explore what is true for us and to be flexible with that you know like i can understand something now but i'm willing to surrender that let go and see what experience informs me do i get a fuller picture and it's not really this or that i kind of just have this approach now where i assume everything i understand is incomplete (laughs) so that keeps (laughs) me open you know open to explore more to allow uh, this moment to inform me rather than the past. The mind will go into the past and I know this is true. So you can miss what's right in front of us, can't we? We often do. We often do. I'm sure the audience um, sees benefit in this and can relate. What is a first step for someone to find out more and possibly try some ascension techniques or a retreat? What would you recommend to people? Um, so for me, I think I love the Ascension techniques because they're mechanical. So everyone, like you don't have to have ever done any type of meditation or mindfulness at all. Or you can have done, you know, like we have people coming that have done transcendental meditation for 30 years and they'll do... TM, yeah. Yeah, they're literally within... I, I, I met one guy who had done that. And then, you know, I think I met him after he'd been... Uh, he came to an advanced course. So I met him when he'd been using the Ascension techniques for five months. And he goes, I've learned more in this five months than I did in 30 years because they're more direct. They're not better. They are not, not saying they're better, but they are more direct. Um, uh, and so if you want to learn them, um, you know, the, the Bright Path is the name of the organization. Um, my, my individual website has links to that. Um, we have information packs. There's videos and stuff to look at on the Bright Path website. So you can actually um, look at what it all is um, and then you can also ask to speak to someone all the teachers contact details are there or you can you know just contact me through my website and I'll I'll talk to you I'll let you know about more I'll send you the information back um, and you know like I said you learn them over a weekend course typically a Friday evening so you get the first technique so you instantly start exploring experientially with a technique and then we kind of build it up as the weekend goes on so starting with just like a few minutes because some people haven't ever sat still <laughs> 
for even three minutes in a row. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. you kind of ease people in. And then we build up talking about the mind-body connection and, and, and the mechanics of ascension, why and how it works. And then we give them the second technique. And, and then we talk about states of consciousness because we're, you know, we're always conscious about something and, and what is possible through using ascension. And then we give them the third technique. And then on the, on the Sunday, we give them the fourth one. And then they get to practice it for slightly longer and, and ask all the questions that they have. And it's kind of a combination of the theory and the, and the putting it into practice. So by the end of the course, you've cleared up all doubt. You know, you're really clear on how to use the techniques most effectively. Um, and to keep it really, really simple. So yeah, if people As you're want to learn. A lo- Sorry, go ahead. No, so if if people want to learn, then they can just yeah look at what courses are available. It's a global organisation. So like I'm in the UK, um, but yeah, if you want to learn in Canada, there are teachers in Canada or America or Australia or wherever you are really. You mentioned that a lot of resources are on your website. So how, how about we mention the website here and then also I'll put it in the show notes. So to to go to your website, what is the uh, URL? Uh, yeah, so my um, personal website is boundless-meditation.co.uk. Um, and there are links to my books. Uh, I have a YouTube channel um, where I'm going to start doing some more video shorts, but there's already some webinar and video shorts on there. Um, and so, yeah. You can get the links to my books and I do courses as well to, to actually help people online and in person. Could uh, listeners get your books on Amazon or some other way? Yeah, so both my books are on Amazon. So even if you've got uh, access to the links on my website, it'll just take you straight through to Amazon. Anyway. Oh, I see. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it might be easier to look up Peace or Pain by Mira Shire or Surrender is Good for the Soul by Mira Shire um, so that you get it in your country. So I, I don't know if the links might take you through to the UK one. I don't know. Right. So Peace or Pain, that was your first book. And your second book is Surrender is Good for the Soul. Thinking of a third book in addition to your webinars? I actually have already completed a uh, workbook and journal to go with my first book, um, that, which is probably going to be released in January, mid-January. End of January, we'll see how it goes. Uh, it's it's completed and just going through all the the checks and and uh, proofreading and everything just to get it um, you know spot on. Um, and then yeah, I've already got copious notes for a book that I want to write about generational relationships um, because oh. I see how we kind of pass on. You know, like kids learn so much in the first few years, so they kind of almost learn to be like their parents. Even if you end up you know as a teenager hating your parents, you end up becoming yeah. like them. You know, and so. Uh, and I think we just don't understand the different generations. Um, and for me, it's just like to to understand all of that and how we can actually start to relate differently and see the good in each generation. Listen, you know, get all the good out of each generation and not just have to be it's this or it's that. So everyone can start to communicate and be more open to, you know, the, the good opportunities that I think each generation sees because we see it differently. That's a fascinating topic because so many of you, so many of you talk about that. Oh my God, I'm 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 just like my father. I'm becoming my father. You know, as you get older, you look in the mirror and you go, "Wow, I really look like my father." And I'm doing this or saying this like my father. So a very interesting uh, uh, subject. I look forward to that. Yeah, and and you know that's the best way I've helped my children is helping myself. When I step out of the pattern, I right. stop passing it on to them. And even though like they're twenty and twenty two now, so they're adults. Um, but still the relationship changes and grows and gets, you know, more loving and open because I continually address myself. 
so that I'm not coming from a reactive place. I'm not coming from a, a habitual, you know, a thinking or behavioral stance about anything. I'm open and I listen to them. And I think listening is such an important thing. When someone see, feels seen and heard and, you know, not judged at all, it's such a, it's, it's the best gift we can give to anyone, really, actually. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And some for some people, that's, you know, they have to learn how to listen. You think that would be, you know, uh, a, a natural thing that we do. But because of the thoughts like you're talking about, we get caught up in our thoughts and about, oh, uh, this is what I want to say or this is what I want to um, do. But especially in communication with partners, it's so important to listen. I had to, I, I grew up in a household where uh, if you didn't speak over other people, you would never be heard. <laughs> you would never get a word in, you know. So, you know, I had uh, in the middle of my course, I had some friends come over with me and they're like, oh, I see where you do that now. Because <laughs> I was I was constantly being told, you know, just stop and listen and but it's such a liberating thing in your own experience to listen. Some people go, well, I don't want to listen to somebody else if they're being rude. And I'm like, well, all right, but then notice their body language. What are they not saying? Pay attention. And if you really are aggravated and riled up by it, what else can you hear? Can you hear birds singing? Can you hear traffic? And it just, you then look after your own experience. And, and then it's just like, you're like air. So anything that's projected at you just goes through you and out the other side, it doesn't stick. Wonderful. I, I appreciate that you took the time to reach out to us and today to, to share about your experiences and your teaching and your healing. Uh, at the end of each episode, we talk about the person's favorite quote, and you sent this to me by email. This is from Trina Paulus. Do I have that right? Yeah. So her quote is, how does one become a butterfly? You must want to fly so much that you're willing to give up being a caterpillar. <laughs> That's awesome. Is there more to it than I would interpret, you know, word for word? Or, or do you think there's more there? Um, it might be, you know, that quote comes from a book called Hope for Flowers, uh, which Trina Paulus, uh, you know, uh, she did all the artwork for it as well. So it's a, quite an old book, actually. Um, it's fantastic one for children. It's maybe for older children than the very young children. I don't know because there's a little, there's more text than that you'd normally have. Um, but it's so fabulous because it's it's just all about this the this caterpillar that is you know trying to improve himself, trying to to look for, and, and they come across this uh, pillar of caterpillars, and they're all just trying to get higher and higher and higher, and they they they're stamping each other in the face and they're pushing each other and hurting each other. You know, it's all about that, you know, doggy dog world mm -hmm. to try and get up into the sky. Like they know intuitively that they, they want to go up. They want more. They're looking for more. And, and this quote for me is all about stop trying to improve your ego in a way, your, your, your caterpillar self and, and, and let go of that so that you, you will naturally become a butterfly. You haven't got to try to do it. And, how does a caterpillar become butterfly? It goes into a dark space and it transforms itself magically into a butterfly, which I've always been very fascinated by. How on earth does it even do that? It's incredible. There's a nature, word for that. It? I can't think of it. The uh, metamorphosis or something. Where, where, yeah, the, metamorphosis. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In the cocoon. Yeah. And I, I've always thought that's just like, for me, that's magic because it's just yeah. like, how does, it, how does it even? And of course, I suppose it's in the dark. We, we don't get to see how it does it. Yeah. So it seems magical when they then, you know, emerge as a butterfly. And I think that's just really such a good quote for me that 
that sh- demonstrates what I was doing in my life. I was mm. trying to improve mm-hmm. myself as a caterpillar when naturally, you know, there's a butterfly hidden in me and all I needed to do was pay attention and let that metamorphosis happen. And naturally, you turn into the butterfly and you get to fly and you're free. But you've got to let go of being the caterpillar and that's the trouble is often the mind wants to try and move, uh, improve on things and make them better. Mm-hmm. And you can't improve on perfection and each of us is, is actually imperfectly perfect, if you like, you know, like we are already perfect. To let go of that judgment of who and what we are and actually just be who we are and then actually we access all our natural traits and qualities and skills and talents. And then we can be the fullest version, the best version of ourselves. That butterfly is the best version and we're all destined to be that. We just have to allow it to happen. You mentioned about, you know, the cocoon being a dark place. And I I never quite thought about that part of the metaphor, but it's very, very strong that you can be in the cocoon and it can be dark and you don't know what's going to happen next coming butterfly but because you're in the darkness we we started off talking about you know in the past you were at a a point of darkness uh that i hope people realize that there is that potential you know if we if we if we let go and give up the caterpillar then there's that potential and hope that life is going to be bright yeah and you know what uh if we turn and face the darkness head on we are the light so we actually shine the light into the darkness. And then that, what happens when you turn the light on? There's no, it's gone. There's no darkness. Anyway, it's actually not as real and tangible as we think it is. And, and so I love that, that you can actually just, the more you learn to recognize who and what you are as pure awareness, that is like turning the light up, turning the light up. So you get to see more clearly and you get to access everything and, you know, so much of what we put in our shadow self, you know, have brilliant qualities that would, would serve us and benefit us. And yet we shove all this stuff away and down because someone's told us that it's not good, you know. And so I think sometimes we hide like the best part of ourselves. And, you know, it does take courage to face the darkness. But when you do that, then you see that it's not as tangible as you think it is. You face your fear and and you see that it's dust. It's 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 not this big scary thing, at all. That was my experience anyway. And I used to be incredibly fearful. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for sharing your experience and and uh, and and wrapping it up in such a meaningful way. Uh, thanks again for for reaching out to us, and and thanks very much for spending the time and being in the studio with us today. Oh, you're very welcome, Greg. It's been amazing. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for having me. Thanks again. I'm sort of blown away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love what she said. It takes courage to face darkness. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's pretty deep. Yeah. I mean, the whole interview was very, very deep, much deeper than I thought. I thought. You know, there mm-hmm. might be some kind of technique or something. This ascension technique may be some way of blocking pain, but that's that's not that's not the case. But just to hear her life story too, oh, yeah, like yeah. Uh, at one time in her life, she um, she was thinking suicidal thoughts. Mm-hmm. One thing that I noticed too: Have you noticed, like, uh, you're a psychotherapist? People, Why? wait, 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 wait. What, what? Why is it you always say psycho 
and then therapist. I resent that. Oh, <laughs> okay, so you were a psychotherapist. Psychotherapist. Not psycho. That's right. Okay, that's right. I, I, I understand. Yeah, because you know, I, a you know that's that's implying that I'm a psycho. <laughs> no, I was not implying I know, that. I know. But as a psychotherapist, uh, <laughs> have you noticed people sleep when they're depressed? And when you sleep, your mind doesn't have a chance to react. Therefore, you're at peace. Mm. Um, and that's something that sort of came out of this conversation that I was I was thinking is the number of times in my life when I've been down, I just want to fall asleep because I want the ability to turn it off in my head. Mm-hmm. Actually, you made me think, well, the answer to your question is yes. Yeah. So um, a lot of people with depression, they they feel benefit of just staying in bed and trying to sleep as much as possible. But what occurred to me. And uh, as we're talking here is that when we sleep, I don't think that we're aware of our physical pain. Uh, when you had pain regarding your hip, when you slept yeah. did, like in bed, did you did you notice pain or there was a point in your sleep? Well, that no, you didn't? because I was but I was I was sleeping. So therefore, my brain didn't interpret the pain. And yeah. uh, so therefore, yeah. That's what I was getting at. And I noticed a lot of people, uh, and I can speak for myself, you know, when I've been down, stuff has happened in my life when I've been down and depressed and I just want to turn it off. The emotional or pain. I remember yeah, saying, yeah. yeah, emotional pain. Yeah. And uh, as far as the hip goes, I had problems getting to sleep because of my hip pain after surgery. Right. Uh, so I, the doctor gave me some meds to help me get to sleep. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was just the ability to turn it off, to turn off that pain. What she was getting at is that there were, we have within ourselves the ability to uh, transcend the pain. And it just occurred to me mm-hmm. that of course we do because we're not experiencing pain 24 hours a day. Like when we're sleeping, where does that pain go? Where does that message go that, that we're in pain unless we shift our body or, you know, or get up, you know, in the middle of the night. Anyway, a very, very interesting interview. I don't like, I know a bit about this stuff. I practiced Zen Buddhism for a number of years. I went to this retreat. So I really relate to her going to going to retreat. And in the retreat, I learned how to, you know, transcend, um, you know, pain in the way of uh, anger and resentment. Uh, I didn't go there because of physical pain, but I kind of get it. But uh, still, a lot of it, I have to maybe dive into her books again. Well, you brought up another special word there. It's something that uh, I've struggled with for years. I can be a very angry person. Oh, God, yes. Anger. Uh, I actually almost don't like hearing the word because I really don't want to be angry in my life. But unfortunately, I spent many years being angry at many people, many situations. I was joking like when I said, oh, yeah. Oh, like you're, you're serious. You, you've, you've experienced anger. Like I've never seen that. Oh, I, in fact, and I'm going to be truthful here years ago, I actually went to some anger management really? classes. Yeah, that, that's yep. not you. Yeah. No, it's not me because, uh, you know, uh, but in my, my darkest times, I was a very angry person at situations and, or people. I didn't know that. Huh? Yeah. How did you transcend that? 
Well, <laughs> I just, I went to these classes and I, I, I think uh, the biggest thing, my takeaway from it was I learned not to let stuff bother me. In other words, I learned to breathe. Mm, mm-hmm. I learned instead of to automatically react to a situation, I sat back and I took a breath. Mm-hmm. I guess you could call that a bit of mindfulness. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I would, yeah. What I found, what Mira was talking about is that we have this within us. It's not necessarily uh, something that we have to achieve or work on. It's innate. We just have to discover it within ourselves, uh, whether mm-hmm. it's dealing with anger or dealing with, with chronic pain. The other neat thing, uh, another takeaway, I, I love the analogy uh, uh, of the uh, the caterpillar oh, yeah. becoming yeah. becoming the butterfly because mm-hmm. you're in that dark place as a caterpillar and when you're cocooning or yeah. I guess that yeah and then eventually this ugly looking caterpillar becomes a beautiful butterfly yeah transcending yeah yeah transcending yes yeah. Uh, metamorphosis right yeah yes. In a couple of weeks, Rob, we're going to talk about a very interesting, uh, and I, I'm not going to call it a gadget, but some of you might have heard of the use of EMF or electromagnetic field therapy in mm-hmm. the use of um, mental health and also pain too, uh, chronic pain. Yes. Have you heard of it? Uh, the only thing I that I think of when you're talking about this, and I've actually got one here at home, you know, those things that you would stand on and it sends electroshocks to your feet. Oh, why? What, what does that do? It's uh, it was a thing that I, uh, my mom purchased years ago, but anyone with, uh, with say uh, feet or, or, or leg problems, it's supposed to improve circulation oh. and they send little shocks. Yeah? Anyway, I think that's, Something it's very similar, I think. Along, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I did a little bit of research, a little bit of reading, uh, because we're going to have Suzanne Casamento uh, come on mm-hmm. the show, and she uses what they call amp coil. Uh, very popular. Oh, okay. Amp coil is right. is is just that. It's a coil that uh, she puts on uh, the 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 patient's chest. Okay. And it, I guess, it, it gives off this EMF. Uh, and then because you're able to control the amount of electricity, then you can actually tune it towards whatever problem that the person has. So what you're saying is be of benefit to someone with some depression issues? Yeah, absolutely. That's what that's what I read. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We're going to find out more when uh, uh, she comes on the show. Um, right on. Yeah. In fact, I, I uh, was reading that because uh, we're talking about chronic pain today is that um this is actually helps fractures um heal oh imagine that to mend yeah Yeah, electricity or well i mean i don't know if it's really electricity but you know electromagnetic uh fields yeah 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 Yeah. so we um we're going to be chatting with suzanne soon but you know what we're back next week you and i for a chit chat uh yes another pain in the ass chit chat why why I'm just kidding. Because I'm so particular and I'm I'm a perfectionist, as we were saying at the beginning uh, of the listen, show. As I always say, them's just jokes. <laughs> Folks, we really do get along. You may not think so by listening to the show, but uh, we do get along. And, uh, of course, always email us uh, anytime with your comments on the show and maybe... Uh, 
a topic you'd like us to cover yeah. down the road here on Mind Body Matters. For sure. We'll be back next week with an episode of Keep Talking with my friend Rob. Meanwhile, be kind to yourself. And most importantly, folks, be well. You pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. Be sure to like and follow us on all social media. And if you like what you hear, hit subscribe, download, and share with your friends. Mind Body Matters is a great media production.